This show was produced in central Ohio, the traditional homeland of hundreds of Native American and Indian tribes, including Hopewell, Adena, Miamia, Shawanaki, Shawnee, and Kaskaskia peoples. To support the needs of Indigenous peoples, you can donate to the Native American Indian Center of Central Ohio at naicco.com slash donate. The sense I had from the feedback was, this is a little too mundane. This isn't extraordinary enough. And I'm thinking, okay, but it's my background. This is my life. Like, what, what more do you want me to pull from that? Do you want me to go on a vacation right now? There was a sense of deep awkwardness is how I would describe it. You walk into a lot of these interviews and you feel like you very clearly do not belong. There's a lot of shame with that and a lot of deeply uncomfortable realizations on, you know, maybe I'm not going to be able to get as, you know, where I want to go as easily as I could if I did just shift something about myself. Welcome back to Left of Law School, a podcast and community for progressive law students. I'm your host, Michael Fay. This episode is all about identity and the notion of professionalism in law school, and how people who don't necessarily fit into the traditional image of a lawyer pushed by media, employers, and law school career offices are reshaping the law school experience and the legal profession to better suit and include people who look, act, and talk like them. After the Deeper Than Doctrine segment today, you'll hear my conversation with a law student and a recent law school graduate who share their experiences around race, sexuality, and how the idea of professionalism pushed by law schools and the profession interacts with the toxic elements of a legal education. So let's get to it and start deconstructing the white and heteronormative traditional image of a professional lawyer on this episode of Left of Law School. Thank you all for being here again for another episode of Left of Law School. If you'd like to contact the show with any ideas, feedback, criticism, or if you'd like to contribute to the show as an interview guest or as a student conversation guest, you can check out our website, leftoflawschool.com, or email me directly at leftoflawschool at gmail.com. Everyone subscribed to our newsletter got an update about this episode the morning it was released with a full list of every resource mentioned on the show. So sign up for that newsletter on leftoflawschool.com as well. We're also on Twitter at Left of Law School. With that, let's get to this week's Deeper Than Doctrine segment. If you've been listening to this season of Left of Law School, you know that I try to feature people from across spectrums of identity. And through this, it's been very apparent that often law students who aren't white and male and wealthy and straight face different experiences in law school and in navigating the legal job market. Especially back on episode four with Octavia Carson, they touched on how they sometimes had to worry about how they presented themselves in professional environments in terms of the clothing they wore and how they wore their hair and how they talked. That conversation and other experiences and chats I've had with other law students have really shown me the need to focus in on this topic for an episode of the show. It's very obvious upon starting law school when you start to hear your first professionalism sermons from the career office folks that there's a set of expectations around being a law student. And this set of expectations, which we can generally describe as the idea of professionalism, are grounded in the idea that there's a particular type of law student success story that law schools like to promote and help their students pursue. 
And that traditionally means pushing students towards pathways like serving in judicial clerkships and landing summer associate jobs and junior associate positions at medium and large-sized law firms. To get students into these positions, the school's career programs push this idea that you need to be a well-behaved, polite, civil, traditionally suited-up and clean-cut, polished-looking person to give yourself the best chance of succeeding in those pursuits. It's a not-so-subtle push for students to code-switch when they're around people who might be overtly or internally biased against people who don't sound and look like the white, straight, and wealthy people that they're used to working around. That's why we sit through talks about building your personal brand and selling yourself as a product that employers want to buy. And personally, this is something I've had to think about quite a bit. I mean, I've sometimes questioned how my own expressions of identity and sexuality will be received by my employers and my peers and professors and whether it's something they, in these silly branding terms, would want to buy. And you know, I've definitely felt shy and reserved about mentioning anything around my bisexual identity because it feels risky. Um, yeah, especially when paired with the fact that sometimes I'll wear nail polish uh, to work or to class and I have my ears pierced and I wear earrings to class and work. And I, I wonder if I'm leading others to prejudge me or to identify me in some narrow way based on these expressions. And it, it can be uncomfortable. But ultimately, I, I do me and I trust that my work and you know my thoughts and conversations will speak for themselves. And so this idea of professionalism that the law expects of us is, I think, a, a sort of internalized and institutionalized form of capitalism, right? I, I think it's a, a fatalist uh, recognition of the fact that many lawyers at firms and, and judges and other lawyers like being around younger people who are chummy and relatable and share experiences around how they spend their money and their time. And I don't mean to just universally trash career office people here for sort of perpetuating this trap, but I, I know they've been really helpful to a lot of my friends and myself as well, and I'm not sure this is necessarily a universal experience across law schools, but I think instead of just you know pushing this idea that we need to conform to succeed, law schools should all start from the point and the perspective of being honest about this situation by saying, Look, the legal profession is still dominated by white men, and although this is slowly changing in some respects, the hiring and fellowship processes you'll go through might cause you to question how your identity fits into the field, and you'll get the sense that an employer wants you to look and act like someone you aren't, and if that's the case, then you'll have to make your own decision around whether you want us to help you find somewhere where you'll be more at home, or whether you want us to help you get that job anyway. I think that should be the starting point for law schools. That's how they should all orient themselves towards helping us. And I think otherwise, pushing a traditional and white heteronormative idea of professionalism helps perpetuate these shitty aspects of the profession and helps gatekeep across the law in a very class elitist type of way. And I want to emphasize at this point something that one of our first interview guests on this show, Professor Amna Akbar, said on episode two of this season, that law schools reflect the state of the law itself. And so it should be no surprise that they've internalized many of the white supremacist origins of the law and push law students to, you know, not engage in critical behavior and protests and cultural associations that might threaten the legal profession's reputation for civility and respectfulness, which of course is just code for whiteness and wealth. To close out this segment, I want to pivot us towards a solution, or at least a set of ideas to help us understand the idea of law school professionalism a bit better. 
As I was writing this episode, I found a blog post on Twitter by Kendra Albert, who is a technology lawyer at Harvard Law Cyber Law Clinic and director of the Initiative for a Representative First Amendment. In a post called Care, Not Respect, Teaching Professionalism, which you can find on leftoflawschool.com, Kendra says, professionalism comes to stand in for the unnameable, the je ne sais quoi. It means looks like us or acts like us. Professionalism implicitly relies on the stereotypes about who belongs in law and who does not. Kendra cites examples like neurodivergent students being told to make eye contact in meetings where it doesn't really make a difference besides giving the supervisor there a power trip, and female students who are held to dress code requirements that only work for some bodies and not to mention only some budgets. Kendra really effectively connects the professionalism issue with the practice of the law itself. They say, if a student dares to ask why these things matter, professionalism is usually framed in terms of respect for legal institutions. We stand when the judge enters because it's respectful. We wear a suit to court because we respect the institution. But as someone who is often disrespected or harmed by legal institutions, I find it hard to act from this frame. Call me petty, but legal institutions so rarely go out of their way to respect me or the people I care about. Performing respect for them doesn't get me out of bed in the morning. So instead, Kendra says, it's important to reframe professionalism in how we teach this concept as a way of caring about others around us. It should be about producing high-quality, careful work products because our clients deserve to know that they matter, especially when we're working in the public interest field, where a lot of our clients are impoverished and consistently disrespected or discriminated against. It should be about being prepared for meetings with agendas and showing up on time because we care about those people that we're meeting with and meeting for. And when people can't do that, when they can't show up on time or can't come prepared to the meeting, we let it go and we show respect for those who might have a lot of personal stuff going on in their lives. A final line I want to highlight from Kendra's post sums up the issue really well. They say, we can accept dress codes for the utter horseshit that they are and still follow them because we care about our clients. So keep this in mind as you're navigating the legal job market and your internships and classes, being professional shouldn't be about who you are and how you look and talk, but unfortunately it's often treated as such. And so your personal calculation around your identity and your work as a lawyer and how you present yourself, it will be different from those around you. Taking some time to understand this and to prioritize caring for those that you're serving That'll help lead you to a more a grounded and self-loving place in a profession typically oriented towards conformity and performative respect rather than a real culture of care. Next up is our student community conversation for this week, which will be the heart of this episode and close us out. You'll hear from Eric, a recent law school graduate, and Hope, a rising third-year law student, about their experiences around race and sexuality and identity and how they are navigating the toxic aspects of law school and the legal profession. Here's our interview. I'm Hope Moreland. I'm a rising 3L at Case Western uh, School of Law. I'm interning right now at the Regional Public Defender for Capital Cases in Texas. Thanks for being here. And Eric? So I'm Eric. Uh, I went to school in the D.C. metro area, and I'm currently preparing for my state's bar, which that's been a fun experience. Um, I'm interested in commercial litigation, and I have two clerkships lined up for me for the following two years. And beyond that, it's up in the air. 
Wow, fantastic. That's, uh, I'm going to have to ask you about the, the clerkship application process and how that's going for you too, because I'm sure a lot of people will be interested in, in hearing that. So, but just uh, the general idea of this episode, as you know, we've talked about a bit between the three of us, is you know, it came from a previous conversation I had about expressions of racial identity and non-conforming gender representations, such as you know, nails, earrings, hair, clothing, whatever, and generally any representations that do not conform to the white and heteronormative image of a lawyer uh, that can put law students and new lawyers in a, a sort of uncomfortable position where they might have to choose between being and living who they are versus trying to fit into the conservative legal world, which is obviously not how it should be. Do any of these thoughts resonate with you, either of you, to start out with, uh, either with your experience in law school or in the work that you've done so far in the legal world? Definitely does for me. Um, I don't know about any other law schools, but case are like first two weeks into classes, they sent out our career um, center, sent out this huge PowerPoint on like dress for interviews. And it more or less was like, if you wear anything but a black suit or like a black dress, like you are not going to get the job. Like it is too frilly. If you are a Navy suit, you will be like showboating and they just won't hire you, which obviously having gone to several interviews myself, I can say is not true. Like nobody pays that much attention to what you're wearing. But as someone who I was coming in, I didn't know anybody who wore suits to work. Like I'm a first generation law student. Um, my parent is a teacher, so I just didn't know. So I was like, well, I guess that makes sense. Right. I mean, I didn't know anything else. Um, and then like walking in the first day, I was like, oh, this obviously like was misleading more than a little bit, as well as like you said, hair. Um, I had my hair buzzed very, very short my first year mm -hmm. and I walked into the career center and I was talking. And at the time I thought I wanted to do contract law, so like big law mm -hmm. and my career advisor like lets me get to the end of like what I'm looking for. And then she goes, so what are you going to do about your hair? Oh no. Uh, yeah. And I was like, <laughs> oh, well, God. I'm thinking about growing it out, but I don't really know what else, you know, like, Ugh. what do you mean? She goes, well, if you're going to go in, like, you're going to want to fix that. Like you're going to want to grow it out. Like it needs to be longer. And I mean, it's one of those things where I was already thinking about doing it anyway, but it was just like having that, like said to me, like point blank, like you should not be in any way you know, towing that line was very, a very stark reminder of right. like the area of law I was looking into. Yeah. It's just this like idea that you want to work at a place that wouldn't like, you wouldn't want to work at a place that wouldn't hire you because of those reasons anyway. Right. And the fact yeah. that the career office wouldn't like lead with that being like, listen, I don't know where exactly you want to work, but there are some places that, you know, might be weird about this. They need to present that in a much more, you know, open and, and welcoming way for you. So I'm sorry I had to go through that. That sucks. But Eric, did you want to respond at all? Yeah, I mean, on that same subject, right? Um, I don't I don't remember if my school sent anything about clothing the day, like the first day, but definitely around the time it came for me to do on-campus interviews. Um, you know, I tweeted about this and uh, it ended up being the case that I wore, I think it was a red shirt and some black dress pants uh and a blazer for a set of interviews and the entire interviews like all of them went fine right and then i get home that day and i get a call and it's someone from the career development office and someone is on the line saying yeah so no employer has said anything about this but um about your clothes and i'm and i'm thinking 
what about my clothes? These are the, this is the same outfit I wore for trials at a local mm. circuit court. What, what's going on here? And the, you know, I've, I've gotten compliments on this same clothing. Like, sure, they've been maybe a little warm, but nothing to the extent of. So I went ahead and I asked some questions. I was like, what's going on here? And the conversation more or less devolved into, yeah, no one said anything, but basically your clothes look too worn it's unprofessional to wear red to interviews which you know on one hand i can say okay sure but also wait what um and you know i asked well i don't have money you know the the bottom line was i come from a family of you know salvadoran immigrants we come from poverty it it took me two years just to get myself set up um at home situation where i could even financially go to law school on loans and so the idea of buying, um, you know, a whole new set of suits for interviews was kind of insane to me. And I said, well, is the school prepared to pay for me? They said, no. And I said, all right, cool. Great talk. Um, but that was, uh, I'm happy I was home to the extent where the humiliation was at home rather than like in front of anyone else. Um, that was not a fun conversation when I got home. Everyone else was just, what do they mean? You've been in court with that. Right. So that's a fun one. Yeah, that sucks. And that that goes to something that, you know, we had kind of prepared to possibly talk about this episode is just this idea of like, career offices sort of enforcing reinforcing that image of the boxy, white, uh, heteronormative image of a, a lawyer that is, you know, exists out there as the ideal version of what a lawyer should look like. In other experiences, have you have you seen your career offices or other administrators at your school or faculty even trying to encourage conformity and, and sort of repression of expression of identity in order to get jobs and opportunities. I know at, at my school, it's it's been a thing where, you know, a career office puts on sessions about, you know, building your personal brand and making sure that you're presenting the image of yourself that other people will want to buy and whatnot. And that just like institutionalized, internalized capitalism just makes me want to gag. So <laughs> seeing that presented as like the official image from the school of like how you should present yourself as a lawyer is just really upsetting. But I, I wondered if you had, either of you had any similar shared uh, experiences around that. Yeah, I mean, I can kind of mention two things. So first is another thing our career office sent out, which was like a big list of like, I think former jurors had been polled after attorneys had presented their cases on like what impacted their opinion of the attorney and like in a big like font was women wearing heels between three inches and six inches got like the best rating and was the most professional. If you wore flats, like they basically didn't take you seriously. And there was no comment attached to it from the office, but the message was pretty obvious. Like here's the exact like stats of what you need to do to conform the best. Mm -hmm. Um, But the second is just from, even from other students, Um, I have pretty big tattoos like above the knee. So I usually keep them covered in the office But when I'm wearing shorts, like they're pretty obvious, right? It's a couple inches of tattoo showing. And at one day I just like wore shorts to class. It's like 90 degrees. I walked to school, like didn't think anything about it. And I got like really weird looks just all day. Mm -hmm. Like, and finally somebody was like, you know, like we're in law school. Like we're trying to present like a professional image just in case like somebody comes in the door or like a judge is speaking that day. Like you need to look like professional which is really weird to me considering I'd worn like sweatpants like two weeks before and nobody said anything right but the fact that well you have tattoos that's a little bit too much you know it's a little too edgy which considering how many people and how many attorneys these days do have tattoos and 
choose to keep them covered or don't just seems like ridiculous, especially when we're in classes. Yep. I think for me, um, there was a lot of enforcement of what I consider corporate culture. Um, there, to me, there's a stark difference of how I was raised, what I'm used to back home, you know, for the longest time until I got to college, corporate culture was a complete mystery to me. Um, you know, you, I'm sure everyone at this point in law school who's seen like these professional emails to whom it may concern, please advise that like those kinds of words, like the physical embodiment of what that language is in the office. Like to me, I'm like, what is this? And so when I first started having some interviews and having mock interviews, I would remember, you know, they would, uh, I remember questions of like, oh, you know, what have you done? Like, have, where have you traveled? Like things like that are supposed to be the fun questions, right. like the vibe check of the interview. And apparently I would flunk it because my only go-to would be, oh, well, I've been back home to El Salvador, but I don't make a mention of sports because I don't have a sports background at all. Um, I don't make a mention of like traveling to rich countries or anything for fun. Like the, this is just me going back home. Like, and the, and a lot of the, the sense I had from the feedback was this is a little too mundane. This isn't extraordinary enough. And I'm thinking, okay, but it's my background. This is my life. Like what, what more do you want me to pull from that? Do you want me to go on a vacation right now? There was a sense of deep awkwardness is how I would describe it. You walk into a lot of these interviews and you feel like you very clearly do not belong. Like, what am I doing here? This feels downright oppressive. And I think many of the times you would hear interviewers sigh or say, all right, let's get this started. Like, I don't want to be here. I'm like, cool. Love setting the tone. Yeah, I hate hearing that. Uh, and I think it goes back to what we uh, talked about a little bit earlier on this season of Left of Law School is this notion of gatekeeping and how the profession keeps itself white and wealthy uh, and male and how, you know, the cycles of hiring people that fit into that image because they can commiserate about those sort of things, their wealthy experiences uh, is just, just a really unfortunate perpetuation. So yeah, thanks for sharing that, Eric. Um, yeah. So how, how do these issues that we've talked about um, from identity and just this notion of, you know, having to be wealthy in order to fit in or have some sort of corporate experience or notion of like what the professional environment should look like or how you should act. How does this sort of reinforce the law school's toxic structure that anything from the grading system to how journals uh, function, the zero sum grading scale of law schools and how they pit us against each other in ways that make us sort of competitive in ways that are really uncomfortable. How does this fit into that overall toxic environment? I mean, I think one of my friends phrased it to me once, which is you're basically locking a bunch of very high achieving people who like to win things in a room and then telling them more or less a set of rules on this is how you succeed and just letting them tear each other apart. Right. Mm -hmm. And that leads to a lot of people who maybe don't fit that mold, trying either trying to fit it or not mentioning, Hey, I don't fit this mm -hmm. because then there's a lot of shame coming with that because well then you're not following the rules, right? You're not going to fit into whatever this mold is trying to make you. And there's a lot of shame with that and a lot of deeply uncomfortable realizations on, you know, maybe I'm not going to be able to get as, you know, where I want to go as easily as I could if I did just shift something about myself, which is coming from someone who naturally can, right? I'm openly bisexual, but I could just not mention that in the job interview mm -hmm. and just anything else where people who maybe can't shift that are inherently just at that disadvantage permanently. Right. 
for me, one big thing about law school, you know, I echo everything Hope mentioned, and it reminds me of this mentality that misery demands company. Mm. Law school sense, a lot of your peers will look at you funny if you aren't also down in the dumps every day, also suffering, also questioning whether you know anything. Like, And it's odd because many times uh, if if you do well, you're ostracized. If you do poorly and you own up to it, you're ostracized because, haha, you don't know anything. If you're in the middle of the pack, to some extent, you're ostracized either because you're owning up to that, not trying hard enough. Like there, will, there is no way where you can find an, a space in performance where you aren't judged by some group for just being there. Um, and in many ways, I think altruism especially gets punished in law school. Um, you'll find situations where mentors who want to give um, will you'll have their peers question them oh what entitles you or what gives you the authority to go out and do this or uh, oh you're gonna fail if you do this um, or oh well we went through it the hard way they should too why are you holding their hand um, it and these are students who may not even be in direct competition with you and you know, upperclassmen will still venomously refuse to want to see altruism in action, right? Mm -hmm. And I think in many ways that can really be damaging, especially if you're a minority, if you're a minority group, right? You know, especially if you're first generation, like for the life of me, I know I could spend hours talking to first generation students, not about anything substantive, just a conversation about how to survive. Yeah. And I would get looks saying, why are you spending these hours? You're holding their hand. No, I'm not. <laughs> like it's, it's needed. Like this shouldn't be punished. Like we don't need to be this cutthroat to succeed, especially when the idea is post-grad, we're supposed to work together. Right. Why this now, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it definitely, I think, carries over to how people view public interest work for sure. Um, partially, I think, because everybody knows you're going to be making easily a third of what people going to big law are going to make, right? And so you're going to be inherently less successful um, as most people think of it, right, under capitalism. And so knowing that expressing interest in that people are like they view it almost as like a garbage collector where it's like you know it's necessary i think it's great that you're doing it but i wouldn't do it you know i wouldn't want my kid to do it it's like not something people want to touch or talk about and if you express interest in it people will definitely treat it like you're willingly like lowering yourself or that you can't get a big firm job which isn't even necessarily true yeah i, th I think that also feeds um it, it cuts the opposite the opposite way depending on if you're a minority especially i think um i've like i've been told many times like because i'm interested in commercial litigation typically you'll find that in big firms and you know i've been told like oh you're a traitor or oh or you're selling your soul like there's this narrative right like uh, you know and i you know for my part i think whatever you want to go into go into it if you're interested for me i generally i genuinely enjoy that type of law it's what my mentor did it's what i found myself enjoying and so i went for it and i had fun but um to the eyes of everyone else um in the sense of like my peers they would say oh how dare you or you should not be doing that like for the sake of your culture you should be doing public interest and whatever form that may take oftentimes it was immigration law which itself is a whole different conversation. You know, me being uh, from the Latinx community, that's its own conversation. Right. I'm glad we did touch on this because I think it's really important to talk about how sometimes the lenses of judgment that we put on each other in law school even intersect with the communities that we're a part of. 
Um, I know Hope, you and I messaged a little bit beforehand about, you know, how people within the LGBT community might have disagreements about others who take that path of working in corporate litigation or in, in big law in general, and how some others might view that as sort of being, like Eric was saying, sort of like you're a, a traitor to your cause or whatever, which is such a limited way to, to, think, to think about this. Um, and yeah, so I'm glad that you shared what you did there, Eric. Um, I'd like to focus a little bit more on queer identity and, and queer spaces in law school. I, I've had conversations about, you know, how there can be some friction or disagreement about people with queer identities entering into jobs or positions where they might be contributing to a, a firm or government agency, for example, that, you know, that historically has participated in upholding and designing discriminatory laws and systems. And I think those can be legitimate critiques, but you really have to individualize this so much. The calculation is so different depending on your background, depending on your history with your your wealth, your race, your status within the LGBT community. Like it's a whole set of intersecting identities that lead you to your path uh, in the legal profession. And I don't think that having any one particular identity should pigeonhole you into being one particular type of lawyer. We talked about this a little bit earlier in this, this season with A.J. Link from the National Disabled Lawsuits Association about how oftentimes disabled law students are, you know, assumed to be wanting to do disability rights litigation or lawyering for disability uh, rights in their, their careers, which is just an inherently discriminatory and uh, gatekeeping way to think about this. So, yeah, I mean, I think for sure it's definitely an individual calculation that like people need to make for themselves. Um, I've had the discussion, especially with people who maybe want to do government work, um, especially government work in the South that maybe won't lean as left or as um, queer friendly as people might wish, um, or as it should is probably how I should phrase it. Um, because part of it is when a law is enacted or litigation begins, that is going to be actively oppressive. Like I don't feel more represented because a queer person was involved in it. Um, right. Like that's, you know, it's not a win. Um, but I also think that just the answer isn't, well, no queer person should ever touch this, or we shouldn't even, we should not even try and enter these fields. Right. Because, that's just not the answer. Not having your own voice represented, I think, just in an entire field, just based on a preconception of how that field works, is not how you're going to solve pretty much anything, any issue with it. I think uh, to the extent the issues overlap with my identity as a Latino, right, I think if I look at it as how everyone tries to pigeonhole me um, or anyone in my ethnic group into immigration or asylum work, there's this tension um all right so i'll i'll i want to do it on one hand because i get it mm -hmm. um you know i can empathize i can speak the language in many aspects whereas my employers might not be able to so i might be the only person in this office fit to actually communicate with the client right so on one hand there feels like there's this compulsion of like i can actually empathize and on the other hand there's the question of but this isn't what i signed up for um and yet i'm being pigeonholed so the principle of it's not what I wanted to do, but I'm doing it anyway on principle because it's a good thing to do. It creates so much internal tension because on one hand, you're happy you've done the work, but on the other hand, you want to be good at what you want to be good at. You know, I will take, for example, as much immigration pro bono work as you throw at me if that's what you need me to do. But if I'm in this field and my job title is commercial litigator, ideally that should be what my work focuses on. Right. But if that's not the case, what's going on? 
Yeah. I think that's one thing is people always want to ask, like, why are you going into public defense or right? Why are you going into the field of law that you're going into? And I think especially public interest work, most people rattle off like a very good natured, right? Very um, good Samaritan answer of, you know, I want to help people. I want to do things. But my answer is usually because I enjoy it. Like that was my first consideration was, okay, I enjoy it. And then I can go and enjoy the work and actually do the work without just completely burning myself out. I came to law school to do contract work. And then I took contracts and I actually thought I like really understood them. And then I took the exam and I was like, never mind. Um, <laughs> that's above my head. I'm never going to get that. Um, and so started applying to other places and ended up re- finding out that I really enjoyed criminal work. I really enjoy litigation. Um, and so that's what I decided to go into. So I think that has to be one of your main considerations. And it's considered weird if it's not, um, at least in some fields of the law. And, you know, I think that people forget that. Yeah, I think a lot of the time, some people feel like it's an obligation, and they don't actually really enjoy the work, and they end up burning out very quickly because of that. Obviously, with all the the burdens of public interest work being low paid, and often, uh, depending on your, you know, which type of job you take, also high hours, and also dealing with very stressful environments, helping people who, you know, are experiencing discrimination, who are impoverished, and up against a massively discriminatory legal system. And having to reckon with that every single day. So you really have to have an internal enjoyment or passion for that in order to survive it. So I'm glad you, you've uh, talked through that a bit. Just before we close out here, I'm interested in talking a little bit about what communities have been important for you to you know, get some distance from these toxic aspects of law school. Where have you found your, your community and people that you share experiences with and that you can kind of commiserate with or at least celebrate your, your successes and enjoyments in law school? So mine, um, I remember before I came to law school, I was pretty sure if I wasn't the only queer person in the class, I'd be one of like two or three. Um, Just because I think there's like 150 people. I was like, I'll run the numbers. You know, there's not going to be that many. Um, And it turns out there actually was. There's quite a few. Um, But there wasn't any queer group at school except by name. I think it like had maybe one officer. Nobody ran it. and I got pretty annoyed and was complaining about it. And unusually for a law school student, I hate complaining about stuff. So I figured I'd be run for office for it and do it myself. Cause at least if it was bad, then I couldn't really complain about it without complaining about myself. And so ended up, we currently have Lambda where we've had multiple speakers, we have meetings. Um, and that helps a lot just because like I said, it went from knowing, you know, a handful of other queer people in my section to, oh, there's another hundred something people that I just never talked to partially because of COVID and partially because of the way sections work um, that now I have this, you know, whole new set of people that I didn't know about. Um, and also I think COVID almost helped that in a way. Um, I'm not a particularly social person by nature. So I really only spoke to four people anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and then COVID hit and now they're pretty much the only people I see on any kind of regular basis. Um, And that just helped a lot. I know that's not something that'll apply to everybody. It's not something I would want to apply to everybody, but I think definitely not trying to talk to people who you know are going to be toxic, right? Or you know who are going to try and start stuff with you every conversation. Like, why bother, right? Why try try and fight that fight when you don't necessarily have to? I found refuge in our Latinx Law Students Association, LALSA, and you know, in my year, there were less than 10 of us. And that more or less remained consistent as um, each year went by. Um, it, it 
it was it's been rough because you walk in through these spaces and in many respects you start questioning whether what you see with racial ignorance is actually there because everyone and their mothers will tell you what are you talking about no that's that's just how they are or you know particularly with problematic students especially in class you might hear the class contrarian coming in saying but to play devil's advocate insert really problematic racially ignorant statement here and what you hear seems to be different than what you know white folks would hear around you and you walk out of the class saying that was really problematic what are you talking about eric and so when i came in with you know when i started meeting students who were from my community i started thinking okay please tell me i'm not crazy and they would tell you no <laughs> you're not crazy and there it, it's almost like a mental health reset button where you commiserate at such a deeply profound empathetic level that you you feel understood for the first time in my case in weeks um you know many of the students there became you know who i foresee to be lifelong friends uh, I found refuge in mentorship, um, in, so I took a leadership role in LALSA, and I went ahead and started mentoring pretty much any student I could find, not just students in LALSA, and it eventually became the case where I pretty much befriended almost the totality of the 1Ls yeah. um, as I became a 2L, so that was a fun time. So yeah, I mean, I, I know a healthy amount of 1Ls. Well, there are 3Ls now. And, you know, a good amount of them thank me for the help. And but the, the key for me was uh, through LALSA, I found, I think, a space where I felt like I could be myself. Like I felt like I could be I was encouraged to give. I was encouraged to take in terms of we are your community. Take from us whatever refuge you can find some solace from this in this white space with us. Um, I think as a brown student in law school you have to question a lot of performative allies it becomes hard um because those aren't comfortable conversations for most people most people understandably live their lives engaging in certain behaviors when they're questioned oftentimes for the first time in law school they're 20 some years in their life and someone they never met is saying this is problematic what are you talking about but it's there and those are hard conversations to have. And it's good to find a community in my end that understood that struggle. I mean, one thing that helped me too is community outside of law school. So I had several friends um, from undergrad and from high school that had always been, we've always been pretty close. And one issue with um, being bisexual, especially in queer spaces, is if you're the only person there who is bisexual, you run into issues from straight people who have homophobia, and then you run into gay people who have biphobia and you can't really complain about biphobia um, with people who can't even really conceptualize gay people, let alone bisexual people, let alone issues within the queer community against each other. Right. And so having, you know, people in my class where I think, OK, we're both queer, we're going to like relate on this level and then having them be like, well, OK, but are you really a lesbian or are you a real lesbian or do you date men, too? Um, and having to be like, well, I'm bisexual and like, okay, but like, really, like, no, really, um, it's, you know, like a thing. And so being able to complain to somebody who isn't part of the law school, because a part of it too, is if you complain about it to somebody, well, then you're probably starting gossip, right? Especially if you complain about it within the hearing of someone who maybe you don't want to complain about it with, this was not a COVID era. 
thing, but we had like a little lunch room and people would absolutely sit at tables just to listen to other people talk Mm -hmm. and get whatever gossip they could and spread that around. And so having someone where you can just talk to and vent who isn't part of the law school and you don't have to worry about that can really help. Right. I, I, as a bisexual person myself, I've run into that same exact conversation basically multiple times, (laughs) especially like, you know, being in a partnership with a woman it's it's like you you instantly invalidate yourself to some people in the community so that is a very frustrating thing so thanks for sharing um that hope so yeah before we close out if y'all want to drop any last closing advice for folks i got dinged for this because my friend asked me the same thing because she'll be a ta next year um and i started off with my email with it doesn't get better um whatever you're experiencing right now your first semester your first your first month you'll probably hear two l's and three l's be like well Two L years easier, three L years better. Um, and they're not like you're probably going to end up with a higher workload. You just get used to it. And so whatever you need to do now to adjust, whether that's finding a community, whether that's changing your study schedule, whether that's getting tutoring, whatever you think you need to do, just go ahead and do it. And don't wait around and think, well, I'll get used to it or I'll get better at it. Just make that change. I'm about to start my third year and I don't think I've studied the same way for an exam one single semester. Um, so yeah, just don't expect, like, don't think it's something wrong with you and don't think it's something that's going to get better. Just go ahead and make whatever change you think you need to make. Cause it, it will help. Yeah. Much like hope. I tell my mentees, um, who asked me, does it get better? Uh, you know, my firm answer is no, but your ability to handle worse get increases faster than how bad it gets. Um, and I think that, and I think that tracks, uh, you know, I encourage everyone, you know, reach out you know, you find plenty of people on social media, um, in your immediate, you know, network through professors, through alumni who you can contact, who want to help, right? You know, these are people who've been in your shoes. These are people who can truly empathize, who get that struggle. You know, I think, um, more recently I've had the opportunity to reach out on law Twitter, um, to people like me. And I've heard so many times I get that. And the entire time I'm thinking, oh my God, uh, you know, I spent all of my years in law school without law Twitter, so I never knew there was a, really a community active where I could reach out and say, help me un- not feel like I'm, no, don't let the performative allies gaslight me into thinking I'm crazy. Am I crazy? And they would tell me, no, you're not. And that's, I think, a very powerful thing. It's a profound thing to hear. You're not crazy. I get it. So by all means, again, reach out, contact the people who are there to help you. And much like Hope said, don't wait. You know, don't wait on on the premise of I'll get it at some point or it'll all be OK or I think it's a small question. There, there's no such thing as a small question like where anyone who goes into law school is already too smart to have imposter syndrome. By all means, reach out, please. Well, I, I'm glad you mentioned that, Eric. I actually want to make sure I give a chance for you to give any sort of way that folks can connect with you or reach out to you if they would like to. Whatever you're comfortable with sharing, an email or Twitter. Oh, by all means. Uh, I mean, I'm always ranting on law Twitter all the time. So you can just find me at the Papusa plant. So that's uh, T-H-E-P-U-P-U-S-A-P-L-A-N-T, one word. Um, Yeah, I mean, by all means, reach out to me. I'm always ranting about my experiences, um, experiences I've seen. Um, I'm getting DMs every day, basically, and I'm more than happy to meet with people. I think I've met with about three this week. Um, 
you know, scheduled a couple more next week. Like it's a good time and it's, and one by one, like we can all reach out, establish this network and be there for each other. Great. Thanks for sharing that, Eric, and being willing to have those conversations. Appreciate it. Hope if, if folks want to connect with you, where can they do that? Yeah. So I'm on LinkedIn, but I'm also on Twitter um, at hope underscore Moreland. So at hope with the underscore and then M-O-R-E-L-A-N-D. It's a lot of pictures of my cat, but I promise you, if you DM me, I'm more than willing to talk about any issues you're having in law school, or if you're thinking about going to law school, I'm happy to help talk about it with you. Thanks again to Hope and Eric for that excellent conversation, and thank you for listening to this episode of Left of Law School. Again, for all the resources, books, articles, and whatnot mentioned today, please visit leftoflawschool.com. You can also sign up for our newsletter there, which will hit your inbox every week when a new episode drops. Next week will be our final episode of the season, and we'll talk about progressive successes in law school and how certain schools are changing the landscape of the legal profession. For any suggestions, questions, tips, or requests, or if you'd be interested in appearing on this show, either as an interview subject or a student guest, please email me at leftoflawschool at gmail.com. My name is Michael Fay, and I'm excited to bring you this show as producer and host every week. Our logo and design features are by Erica Seifring. See you next week on Left of Law School. Thank you.